Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to get the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try and settle that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Well, your parents are moms, too. The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue. Congratulations. That really turned out well. I wish I had the courage to follow my dreams. Hello and welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting on WLCB 101.5, based in the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person, or are thinking about becoming one, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself, and I love helping other entrepreneurs. I've counseled many startups and small businesses over the past 30 years, and I've also helped start at least nine different businesses. The Savvy Entrepreneur Show has two goals, to share helpful information and resources, and to inspire you entrepreneurs out there to make your journey a little faster and easier, and maybe just a little bit more fun. To help with that, I have guests every week on the show who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Patricia Miller, who's the CEO of Matrix 4. Matrix 4, in some ways, is a startup and other ways, not so much. Matrix 4 was originally Patricia's grandfather's company. It made plastic parts, and when he turned over the business to Patricia, it was struggling. She completely turned the company around, in the process creating what she calls the first product design and manufacturing house to drive industry growth and innovation and usher in what she calls a new era of culture, leadership, and sophistication. And what a heck of a job she has done. The House of M4, as it's called, was named to Inc.'s 5,000 fastest growing company several years running, was named a top workplace and a top manufacturer in the U.S. Plastic New- in the U.S. by Plastic News. Patricia was celebrated by Crane Chicago 40 Under 40 and was recognized by Plastic News as the most notable woman in manufacturing, as well as an Enterprising Woman 2020 by Enterprising Woman magazine. Prior to coming back to reimagine the House of M4, Patricia built a successful Fortune 500 career in marketing within the pharmaceutical and biotech spaces. She earned bachelor's degrees from the University of Iowa in journalism and marketing and a master's in public policy from the University College of London. In addition to her busy day job, she also serves as a member of the board of directors of the National Association of Manufacturers, or NAM as some people know it, the board of directors of M-Hub in Chicago, and the board of the entrepreneurial program at Prairie Ridge High School, among many other activities. When she's not doing all of that, she says she can often be found getting her hands dirty in her gardens, looking for a more intimate connection with Mother Earth. Patricia, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to The Savvy Entrepreneur. Thank you, Doris. I'm happy to be here. So talk a little bit about your business. 
What is M4? What does it do? And what customers does it serve? Yes, M4 is a consumer products company. So we focus in consumer goods and we have an industrial design studio and a manufacturing factory in one house. We work with companies like Harley Davidson, General Electric, um, L'Oreal, most of the everyday big brands that you're familiar with. And we also get excited about supporting smaller to mid-size brands as well. We focus in sustainability, so we're a durable goods company. We don't do anything in single waste plastic, and we're really interested in continuing to push sustainability, not from a greenwashing standpoint, but from what's really possible with this plastic um, material that we're working in or alternates to plastic material. Well, I hope we have time to come back and touch on that a little more because that is certainly a very interesting angle and an important one for the future of our planet, right? But, you know, first I want to talk about your journey and how you came back to run your grandfather's company. Share with us a little about the story of how that happened, what shape the business was in, and what you needed to do to help turn it around. Sure. So I've never had a a 10-year plan. I I haven't followed a linear career progression, but I've always been focused on getting engaged in things that bring joy and are also disruptive in traditional industry segments. And so my first career was in politics in, in both the British system and the U.S., And then I transitioned into pharma, which later became um, into biotech. And at 32 years old, I felt like I had done all of the things I wanted within that industry segment. And I was looking to continue swimming upstream in my entrepreneurial endeavor. I didn't anticipate it would be to this business, but I had come to work in Chicago in, um, in the summer of 14. Uh, for a cancer program I was working on. And I came back and had dinner with my family to learn that, uh, you know, the recession had really impacted this area in the Midwest. And living on the coast, I hadn't had exposure to all of that at such a critical level. Uh, My grandpa let me know that he was going to close the business. He was 80 years old, and most of manufacturing had left for Asia. And that set me off uh, back on my flight to Southern California, really curious about what was happening in U.S. manufacturing and was it really dead in the U.S.? And so pulling that research and curiosity together with um, a desire to move more upstream entrepreneurially landed me in a decision that I would come take over the factory and restart it. And I'm six years into that now, and it's definitely been the most challenging thing I've done, but also the most rewarding. You know, I love the story because a lot of people think of entrepreneurs as people who start software companies, right? I I don't know why they think that, I guess, because they hear about Google and Amazon and Uber and companies like that so much in the media, but... I'm firmly of the belief that entrepreneurship comes in lots of different forms and flavors. And certainly taking a business that is struggling and turning it around, transforming it is 
definitely a form of entrepreneurship. What were some of the challenges that you faced when you first started out taking on the business? I think some of the largest challenges were, um, you know, I had transitioned industry segments, so I wasn't as up to speed and adapt at this industry as I was in my previous, as well as I hadn't lived in the Midwest since I was growing up. So my network wasn't here. And I, I think in manufacturing, you know, the capital intensity on equipment and technology and the, the multiple moving pieces make it very daunting to believe that it's possible to restart a factory that had run a certain way for 35 years and really hadn't had the investments necessary to become sophisticated in, in industry 4.0 manufacturing. Talk about a story or two so that people get a feel for what some of those specific challenges were like. Sure. So, you know, one that comes to mind that's probably sounds like a very trivial um, example, but, you know, by the time I had come in, my grandpa was, had already started developing dementia. And so there really wasn't a transition like most generation to generations in business. It, it really was, here's the keys. And there wasn't really any insight behind it. And so the first day in was really just digging, you know, rolling up my sleeves and digging into anything I could find. But I had come from one of the most progressive industry segments in pharma and biotech. And what I found when I landed here was a factory that had kept mostly paper copies of everything back to 1976, including who got the poinsettia at Christmas or who got the turkey. (laughs) Thanksgiving, but there wasn't anything in a database or in analytics to really give me almost the cliff notes of what manufacturing and what this organization was like, down to the point that we didn't even have high-speed internet, and this was in 2014. I found there was a satellite on the roof of the business that was powering in internet, but all hardwired. We didn't have Wi-Fi. Um, We didn't have a file folder structure, a server, any of the things that I had believed were instilled in businesses, at least for the last decade or so. And so um, one of the challenges for me was, was not just getting up to speed in an industry and a business I knew nothing about, but doing it in a very antiquated way. Wow files and folders and papers I could find. So I'm guessing there wasn't a whole lot of robotics going on in manufacturing at the facility. No, I mean, I think (laughs) that would be my other challenge, Doris. You know, by 2014, there was such an expectation that a factory had to be as technologically advanced and savvy as possible to stay competitive and alive in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. And this was a business that, um, you know, had dated itself by several decades missing that technological boat. And so not only was it, how do you turn the lights on and how do you paint walls and how do you renovate a facility that had essentially been closed for a few years, but how do you also bring in a level of technology and sophistication to an entire facility while onboarding a full new team and building a strategy. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about the team. I mean, I spent two summers working in a small town at a General Electric plant where my dad worked. I'm just picturing some of the people who were part of the management team kind of of that era. And um, I'm just, I'm talk, talk about some of the management team challenges because I don't even know, was there even a whole team there? Were they resistant to some of these kind of changes? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there was um, there was a skeleton team in place that was essentially uh, when my grandpa was pretty much closing up the business or, or paring it down so significantly, he laid off about 110 people. And what was left was a handful of people that either had loyalty to the business um, and hope that it would turn around and had been here for long enough to transition or close to, to their end of retirement. Of that skeletal team, most of the people were what I would say um, entry level or and technical talent. And then we had a few people that would have been deemed on the management team. Um, two of the two were my mom and my uncle. Oh, um, oh and that, that must have been interesting. Yes, it was. And, you know, I could say overall for the handful of people that were here, there was hope brought in that there might be someone who can lead and point us in a different direction, because I think a lot of that hope had left over the few years that it was sitting idle. But I think along with, um, you know, that hope, it would require a lot of change of what we what I was going to do in the business. And I think as much as all of us as humans say we embrace change or want change, it is more difficult when it's put into motion. Oh yeah. So, so oh, yeah, yeah, there was definitely um, a lot more conversations around communicating the whys of, of why we needed regular meetings and why we needed a strategy and why we needed to clean certain things. But I think in, in general, I was lucky that the team was super receptive and very early on trusted my leadership sense and where we were headed, that they were champions to help us get to where we are. Oh, that's great. How did you go about recruiting new talent? Is there a good talent pool locally or was that something that you tapped into on a more national basis or regional basis? Uh, manufacturing is definitely more local, um, but I would say at least from what I had observed, a lot of the talent in this area had left during the recession when several businesses shuttered. And so the talent pool was smaller and we weren't really driving a new talent pool into the area because there weren't a lot of opportunities that were being created. Um, I think in, in addition, you know, most of the talent was already placed within other manufacturing companies. And something you may be aware of is as an industry segment, we have about 2 million jobs short in the U.S. for manufacturers overall. And so that shortage wow. in combination with the lack of workforce development that had happened over the last decade or two, as well as just the perception that had pivoted that manufacturing was seen as less than, right, or right. wasn't as progressive of a job or, or as desirable to go into, leaves it difficult to find, you know, a strong talent pipeline. 
But one of the things that we focused on from the beginning was how do you create a culture that's so good and a, a purpose that's so powerful that hopefully that helps drive an existing talent pool in our direction if it aligns to a team member that would make sense to have on our team. Well, it's interesting. Things that have been happening because of COVID may be changing that for the better for businesses like yours, where I think there is certainly a pool of new talent who is less interested in living in the cities. I know that only because housing prices here in the suburbs have gone up. I wouldn't have expected that as a trickle-down effect of COVID, but it seems to be the case. And so maybe that will be a, a, a boon for some of the businesses like yours who offer a great quality of life, mm-hmm. more house for your money, stopping and smelling the roses proverbially and literally, you know? Yeah, I hope so too. I, I think that as an industry, we're really focused on how do we drive more um, visibility to what we're doing within our four walls of each of our companies and how do we support building back up a more robust workforce, just knowing um, that shortage isn't going away anytime soon. I'm envisioning some of the changes you needed to make and you alluded to it too, are significant capital investments. How did you find funding for the changes that needed to happen? It's been challenging. Um, We, thank gosh, we've had a really strong bank relationship and I was able to put a line of credit in place in the business in year two. But, um, you know, most of the traditional funding was apprehensive to invest in a factory because they had all experienced a lot of um, struggle with factories closing, you know, in that 2010, 2014 period through the recession. And so I think there was less willingness to loan a manufacturing company money and certainly this manufacturing company money that hadn't been profitable for three years, you know, and and most of the traditional institutions like to see financials that are within, you know, three years running of profitability. (laughs) That's difficult for a turnaround situation. Yeah. And so thank gosh, we did become profitable within that first year, but I wasn't able to show a three-year record. And so I funded the business through that first, um, the first few years of growth. And we also lived on a shoestring budget as a business, right? And so it really was, and still is, the constant trade-off decisions around where do you put your capital and what's the best bang for the buck, what's most needed, and, and what will help you know raise the tide for all of the boats. Well, there must have been some persuasion that happened with customers, either finding new customers or engaging current customers or maybe past customers in conversations that you were serious about a new kind of partnership, right? So that that definitely, you know, I think was one of the beautiful things about this business and one of the learnings for me. I've always believed in the need to be as transparent and authentic as possible, but I had come from an industry that was a leader and people wanted to work for and people wanted to work with. And when I came into this business, no one knew who we were and no one knew what we were about. And so 
being able to pull that from an internal client standpoint, as well as external, you know, was a challenge, but also became a very important piece for me. And I knew early people would have to buy into the vision of what we were going to become, because what was in front of all of us wasn't what ideally we wanted. And so I took um, a more proactive approach to share with clients as well as with teammates where we were headed and to probably go into much more level of detail to that strategy so that they knew, but to also validate why we were doing those things. And then I think a lot of it also had to come with what goals and um, and strategy we put in place, as well as being able to share the outcomes of those strategies and goals so that there could be validation that we were doing what we said we were doing and we were moving at a pace that could be um, digestible for our clients. What skills and knowledge do you think from your prior jobs were particularly helpful in helping turn around Matrix 4? Um, I, I definitely owe so much to being groomed in the Fortune 500 with Eli Lilly. What they offered for and you know someone early in their career was access to so many brilliant people and structure and examples of how things were done. So systems and processes were really important in a company that size. And so I think I got to see what good looks like, at least at a large level, and be able to take a lot of that thinking and the best parts of that thinking and pare it down to a startup scrappy level and move it forward. And so everything from, you know, how do you build a strategy and how do you identify needs in the market and how do you build a strong culture and what's important to think about? How do you ask questions? All of those things, I feel like I learned, you know, and cut my teeth on at at Eli Lilly and then had, had been able to translate into other career roles. And I think also, you know, the other piece is how do you stay aligned to a vision and not get bogged down by the circumstance, right? There, there's a really brilliant woman, Mary Morrissey, who always says, hold the vision, not the circumstance. And I think that's really important when you're in the trenches and things aren't going well, especially in the early days of entrepreneurship. If you can really hold on to why you signed up for this and what are you doing, it makes all of those bumps along the way a lot more feasible to stay in it. I'm sure there are more than a few people listening who are in corporate jobs who are thinking about either starting a business or maybe starting a franchise or maybe a turnaround situation like you stepped into. You get a lot from being in a corporation, but there's probably things that they can't teach you because they're a big company. Talk about some of those kinds of things that you had to learn on the fly. Yeah. You know, one of the things that sticks out for me is just within corporate roles, you, you get to hone your subject matter expertise and, you know, continue staying in that swim lane of, of that expertise should you desire. Where as an entrepreneur, you quickly become a generalist, especially in those early days, which was challenging for, for me at least, because I really loved my background of building brands and focusing on marketing and marketing strategy and marketing campaigns. 
And um, I had really awesome teammates to lean on for finance and HR and all of the other areas of a complex business. Whereas an entrepreneur, you know, especially early on without the ability to build the team out the way that I wanted to, I had to become (laughs) the leader in all of those areas. And so, you know, definitely had to become a generalist that I probably wouldn't have received that experience in in my corporate career. Um, I think the other thing is that, you know, within the corporate world, you still have to align on budgets and expectations, but there is a buffer behind you. And, you know, in the startup days, there isn't a parachute. I was very calculated in all of those early moves, but I also had to learn at a certain place to let go of some of that fear because I think I had gotten adjusted to an organization that if I didn't meet a target or didn't meet a goal, the business wouldn't fail. We would maybe have to pivot or become more aggressive in a certain area. Yeah, but you, I would, def- you wouldn't make your bonus for the year. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Well. <laughs> but I definitely felt here early on that each one of those decisions was really monumental to the outcome of the business. Was your family supportive of all this or was even some persuasion needed there? They were super supportive. Um, I think that when you grow up in a family business, there's something about the identity attached to it that most of them had known for, for either working in the business more intimately or just being, you know, having it within the family. I think in general, though, the the consensus from my grandparents was, why would you leave a progressive, highly lucrative career living in all of these, you know, modern metropolitan cities to come and move back to the middle of America and take over a dead factory in an industry that, you know, was really in question. And so I think they, (laughs) I don't know if it was, you know, have you gone crazy? Are you doing a midlife crisis early? Um, But I think they had had gotten used to, you know, I I had led, led a career that way. And so it wasn't out of the norm that I would be interested in doing something challenging. Yeah, I think that's a generational thing that is definitely changing. And, and I think it's a good thing. People from our parents and grandparents era worked for big companies. I mean, my dad worked for General Electric his whole career and that was viewed as a really good thing. And you just kind of stayed with the company and loyalty, the company was good. And, you know, that was viewed as the good life. And I think that that is, that is changing. I mean, you know, as waves and waves of people get dumped out on the streets and you know, there just isn't loyalty. And I don't, I think on the flip side, there's just not as much sense of, of loyalty and in a sense that taking on new challenges is a, is a good thing. It's, it's validating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, gone are the days of pensions and staying at one company forever. But I also think, you know, you can't rule it out. And it's, brilliant when you can stay at one for your whole career as well. But I think being able to stay open to possibility and make sure you're driving a level of satisfaction and joy out of what you're doing. I agree. 
Patricia, I need to ask you to hold your thoughts for just a second. We need to take a quick break for station identification and a word from a couple of our sponsors. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with Patricia Miller, the CEO of Matrix 4. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. With us this week is Patricia Miller, the CEO of Matrix 4, talking about how she came back to the Midwest and turned around her grandfather's struggling plastics manufacturing company. Patricia, we've been talking about some of the challenges you faced when you first came back. Talk about where the company has traveled and grown since you first came back in, what, 2014, I think you said? Yes. Yeah, so um, I came back at the end of July in 14, and you know, I always love to reflect on this because I think as entrepreneurs and especially someone who likes to move quickly, um, you know, as a visionary, I think time always moves 10 times faster than it, than it should. But, you know, I, I sometimes forget to remember all of the things that we've done. And so I love speaking about this. So thanks for the question. You know, those early days were difficult. It was, how do you get a machine running? How do you get a client? How do you make a part? How do you build out the systems and processes to train and document and make sure quality is built into the system. You know, what do you look at from a culture standpoint? But six years in, it's really awesome to see what we've done. And I'm really excited about where we continue to go. So we run uh, 24 hours a day, mostly five days a week, although through the pandemic, it was um, quite a surprise that we were doing mostly six and seven days a week with some of the clients which was great to offer overtime to the team as well as to see that much productivity coming through. We, uh, we're in the midst of a full renovation on the factory. So we're in a building that, um, that is quite old, but we want to honor it and the industrialness of it, but definitely interested in continuing to optimize it for current workflows and activity that goes throughout. And so that's a really fun project that we're kicking off this year. One of the things that we look at in any of our plans is being as sustainable as possible. So we continue to drive to be a zero waste factory. And and that means, you know, what can we do to optimize energy? How can we take advantage of solar panels? How can we buy machines and equipment that's more energy efficient? So this renovation will allow us to continue moving in that direction in a much stronger way. And we continue to grow with existing clients as well as add additional clients, which has been really fun to see the product mix that goes through the factory. We brought in industrial design two years ago with the intent of being able to design products for our clients and have a turnkey solution from moving from design to manufacturing, as well as being able to design some of our own products. And so um, this year we will launch a a consumer-facing product brand that will be our own and will focus in, in sustainable materials. So I was going to ask you, in fact, how COVID has affected your business and your clients. And I am delighted to hear that it's been an unexpected boon for your business. How has that happened? I, you know, I think a few reasons, Doris, and, you know, I'll clarify it from the, you know, the boom standpoint is 
we hit all of our goals that we had set in place for 2020, but we also had some stretch goals that were more, more difficult to achieve just because of the pandemic and what that meant for the business. I was really reluctant to put investment in certain areas, just not no, just with so much uncertainty of what we were dealing with. But, um, you know, I can't say that the pandemic has been positive for all of our clients or for all of us, right? There's definitely been some struggles. And for some of our clients, their volume and demands went down. But for several, they went up and it was dependent on which industry category they were in and what the consumer was doing in terms of buying choices. So any of the products that we do are that are more kitchen oriented or home oriented increased. I think as more people were home, more people were doing renovation projects. And so that definitely had an increase. Looking back, what has been the best part about taking over the family business and rebuilding it? I think the best part for me is shaping it in a way that I'm proud of, that is highlighting a responsible business in, in the U.S. and in the Chicagoland area. Responsible, not just in terms of how do we lead and how do we drive a culture and how do we drive a strategy, but also in terms of what are we doing to to be champions of what we know is right behind COVID and that's climate change. And so we wanted to make sure that, especially since we work in plastic and have a history of working in plastic for four decades, how do we help shape that narrative and you know, provide an opportunity for clients or businesses that are working in physical products to do it in a more meaningful and sustainable way? So flip side of that question, what's been the hardest part? I think not being able to move at the pace that I would like to. Um, and, and that's, you know, driven primarily from being the only investor in the business. I really wanted to remain in that position early on because we were charting a course that was a bit more unknown and may be perceived as less effective to an early investor that was looking for a return. I definitely wanted to create a business that was going to be sustainable and profitable, but to also take the risk at where I felt a plastics manufacturing company needed to go. A lot of the people that I talk to and counsel are, they have a corporate job or a more typical nine to five job. And they're interested in starting their own business. And you've done both. What are some of the biggest differences, you think, and things that people should think about as they're considering making the leap? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I did an entrepreneurial program through college, and I loved the classes because they felt very real world and applicable. But I didn't think for a minute I would be an entrepreneur. You know, I really loved my corporate roles and, and working in the businesses that I did. What I found was that I probably have an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit, but that I could, I was in businesses that were receptive to new thinking and ideas and would advocate for them if, if they were solid. And so I found that I could be very entrepreneurial within a large organization. 
the big shift for me, I think, was being able to build something and know that, you know, the buck stopped with me. And so oftentimes in a large organization, you may find that you would like it to move a certain way, but it's a, it's a much larger um, ship that has to turn and it turns much slower. And so I was interested in being able to influence things in, in a quicker, more agile way, but that also had big impact for the team we were building and the community that we were in. But I think for anyone that's interested in doing it, I always believe, and I think Simon Sinek, you know, did a great job when he wrote his book, Why. Mm -hmm. I think you always have to start with the why. And if it makes sense and, and is aligned to spirit and is aligned to your interest and you're in that place of life where that feels the most appropriate next step, great, do it. But I think it's really important to make sure that the clarity around the whys is there and also not just the upside of all of those whys, but also what are the things that I'm going to have to forego as a result of these benefits. Right. What advice looking back would you give to other entrepreneurs who are starting on their journey? Hmm. I think, um, you know, you don't have to be an expert at everything. I think that's sometimes challenging when you're the only one in the seat or you're in a small lean team that you have to play that role in a lot of capacities. But I really think being able to lean on a support system and have your go-to advisors is really important. Early on, I made that very clear to several of the people that I trust most in their business um, acumen and how they lead their lives from a value system to say, look, I need you to call me out or challenge me on this and almost serve as a board of directors for me um, without the fiduciary responsibility, but to let me know what blind spot am I seeing, but also, you know, to be able to pick someone's brain or to gain their, um, their subject matter expertise on something. I think the other thing is that, you know, along with that vision for what the business is, I think it's really important to get clarity on what it means in your personal life as well. I'm a big fan of living an integrated life. And so I like pulling the thread through all of the things I'm interested in. But I do know that there were many points along this journey where that amount of working on M4 hours was very high. And I could see how it can be possible to lose oneself within it. And so I think being able to take, you know, what I call the clarity breaks or the pauses, although you feel like you never have the time because there's so much to do. I actually find that those pauses in time allow me to sink back into the business deeper and refreshed, but also while I'm out in that time, I get downloads and things come to me or problems that I needed solutions for end up making their way into a more solution oriented form. And that I'm not always, you know, not seeing the forest from the trees. It's a very Zen approach to things, Patricia. And in fact, that leads right into my next question, which is where you find inspiration when you hit the inevitable rough patches. From so many things. Uh, one of the places I think, especially in rough patches from a business standpoint, is seeing others that have gone through it and others that have overcome adversity. 
or being able to share their perspective or just getting the cheerleading connect. I think having a tribe around you is really important, making sure that you're, you, you've got like-minded, but also people that can call you out and, and have the ability to do so, but can also champion and cheerlead in a really authentic way. I also find such inspiration um, in what others are doing and other entrepreneurs and other game changers and disruptors. I read all the time. I don't watch TV. And so I try to go through a few books a week, as well as just the magazines that I find really interesting. I, I'm a right left brain thinker. And so a lot of times my inspiration comes from more creative outlets, whether that's an art opening or exhibit. Um, I just got back from Marfa, Texas, going to the Marfa Invitational. And so any of the times that I can pull myself out of the day-to-day headspace and be challenged to see something differently or creatively or inspirationally, that really f- fills me up. You know, you you haven't mentioned the fact that there aren't that many women in manufacturing certainly not in the Midwest. Have you found that being a woman is an advantage or a challenge? And any advice for other women entrepreneurs in particular? Yeah, they're definite. I mean, we still see so many less women in executive positions um, than we do men. And, and that was something I experienced in the Fortune 500 as well. And manufacturing adds a, another layer of complexity to that. And there are definitely less women and the ones that are in the space, you know, I I absolutely love getting to know and hearing their stories. I think in general, you know, manufacturing would be perceived in a very stereotypical man's world, um, you know, mostly white men, older, less progressive. But what I found is that uh, I have a lot of male advocates, as well as I do female advocates. And I think it's really important to surround yourself with whomever shares the same perspective and equality as you do. But it has been a large push for me within this business to make sure we're constantly opening our eyes and learning about what it means to be more diverse and inclusive, especially in an industry that is probably one of the least diverse and inclusive. Yeah. It seems to me that part of manufacturing's transformation has to do with infusing it with a far more diverse set of employees and management teams. In my mind, it has to be, you know? Yeah. I think I think for any of our industries, right? If, if we're really going to be able to derive the best of, of all of us, um, I think that's a necessity. And I'm hopeful, we'll, you know, we can continue to push for that and that there's more conversations and more awareness that are continuing to be, uh, you know, become at, this, at the table of, of topics and conversations that may not have been had before. I mean, I look back to in, in my early days in the Fortune 500 you know, I liked dressing up for work every day and I wear big glasses. I've had to wear glasses since I was younger and I have a certain sense of my own personal identity and brand. And, you know, an executive shared with me that if I didn't transition to pantsuits and look more of the part of a conservative uh, corporate leader, that it may be career limiting for me. Oh, 
it's so typical. I worked for Baxter for a long time. We have a lot in common, Patricia, but I, I just laugh because one of the most incredibly sharp, smart, sassy lawyers, female lawyers I know, was told that she needed to put her hair up to look more professional. And another very, very bright woman was told she needed to wear higher heels because the flat shoes she was wearing just didn't look very professional. <laughs> Can you believe? Yeah. I know. I think, unfortunately, there are far more stories than we all share. And, you know, one of the things I don't hold lightly to is that I am a woman business owner in manufacturing. And as much as I didn't want to be front facing early on in this business, because I had never been in, in my previous industry segments, I do realize the importance of it even more so now. And if I'm able to highlight to the, you know, the girls that I do the STEM education with and, you know, K through five or sixth or eighth grade, or someone who's out on my factory floor or anyone that we come across with that it is possible there aren't ceilings and any that are arbitrarily created need to be broken. And, you know, I want to keep pushing for that because I think it's as much about what do we create out of our four walls in terms of products, as well as what kind of platform and opportunity are we creating for us overall? Yeah. Well, you're uh, absolutely genius at segueing to my next question. And, uh, you know, we've talked about the past and the uh, present. And just to touch on the future for a couple of minutes, where would you like Matrix 4 to be in five years? Mm, I, I would like to see um, M4 continue to pave the way for for being uh, known as a responsible and sustainable design and manufacturing company, US-based, woman-owned, creating an opportunity for uh, you know, excitement and energy around what's happening in manufacturing, because so much good happens in this industry segment in all of the factories around the world. But I think being able to really pull the thread through how something gets made and all that goes into it, but also continuing to being an advocate for plastic alternates or more sustainable and earth-friendly materials is really important to us. And I think being able to continue to see products that matter or, or have meaning in people's lives, especially in the consumer space that we work in out in the wild every day um, is really fun. And I think internally, you know, to continue building a space and a work, you know, a work environment that people get jazzed to come into and want to work for and, you know, is creating a sense of joy and excitement for this small community we live in and the local economy that can value, you know, having more job opportunities coming here and things to be excited about that get made um, locally. Well, it sounds like you're well on your way to achieving those goals. Do you think you'll ever get tired of what you're doing today? And if so, what else might you do? Oh, I don't know. You know, I think in general, it's possible, right? I, this is my fourth career and it may be possible, but what I hope is that I, I've achieved the things that I want to here and that I've put in place 
a, a company that's sustainable and long lived and continue th thriving, whether or not I'm in this seat or not. But what I feel clear about is that that, that that's not going to happen anytime soon. I feel like, you know, I'm I'm mid into things and only now starting to find the traction and opportunity to continue shaping and building this into what I have as a vision. And I think the things that are going to come within the next few years in this this early future that I perceive in doing our own products and working at a national level around climate change and working on material research and development and continuing to champion clients and the brands that they're behind. Uh, there's never a dull day in manufacturing. So it, it keeps me on my toes and continues to keep me really excited. How should people reach you if they're interested in learning more about the House of M4 and its products or maybe just something you said today sparked their interest and they'd like to reach out? What's the best way to connect? Oh, I appreciate that. I'm always open to connect and really love hearing from, from others that are in this space or fellow entrepreneurs. Our website is matrix4.com and all of our social handles are on there as well. Most of it's underscore matrix underscore four, the number four. But you can find me via my name or the business on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, or feel free to just, you know, request information through our website and I, that, that will get directed to me. Fantastic. Patricia, thanks so much for being on the show this week. I really enjoyed hearing your story and getting to know more about you and, and your company. Oh, thank you, Doris, for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for creating this platform for others to listen. Thanks so much, Patricia. That's very kind of you. Now, in the few minutes we have left today, I'd like to talk a little bit about market research. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that 42% of startups fail because there is no market need for their products or services. And I've since had a couple of listeners comment that this isn't surprising because most startups don't have the cash to do market research. Well, if you mean hire an expensive market research company, this may be true, but I'd argue there are usually ways to do at least some valuable market research on a budget, especially if you're creative and persistent. With that thought in mind, here are a few suggestions to get your juices flowing. My first idea is to use the internet. Some of you, or most of you hopefully are already doing that, but look at your competitors, see how they position themselves, how long they've been in business and where they market themselves. I would assume everybody does that, but I've had venture capitalists tell me that they actually, as part of a pitch, will just go Google the industry segment and ask the person pitching to them about who this competitor is, and they say, shockingly often, they can't even respond to that. So use the internet. There is a lot of information out there. Definitely take advantage of it because most of it's free or low cost. Another idea, use surveys. There's SurveyMonkey, and there's a paid version of SurveyMonkey, but it's, it's not very expensive. But do be careful. You're actually surveying your potential customers. Some people will put out surveys on LinkedIn and social media sites, but 
you need to be sure you know your future customers actually are on there or make their buying decisions there. I've also had people tell me surveys just don't work. Everybody's surveyed to death. And yet the lack of survey responses can be telling right there. A colleague and I, not too long ago, had an idea to create a whole training course on a topic, but we couldn't get anyone to respond to our request for feedback. We dropped the idea. We figured if no one cared enough to give us feedback on the concept, we thought it would probably be pretty darn hard to sell. But do, if you do a survey, make it, try to make it fairly provocative. Maybe take a, take a devil's advocate position, make a controversial statement, see if that improves your responses. People are surveyed to death, so you need to grab their interest. My third suggestion is make sure you're asking the right questions. Don't just ask, would you find my product or service interesting or would you like it? The answer might very well be yes, but part of having market need is that people are actually willing to pay for it at the price you want to charge for it. So be sure to ask them, what would you pay for it? What features and benefits or guarantees would you want to see? My best suggestion is actually one that I think people do way too little of, and that is just plain old chat up people. So some suggestions here, your existing network, really look at your neighbors and parents of uh, your school children, your LinkedIn and Twitter connections. You may really be uh, surprised at the resources if you really dig deep in there. Another idea, trade association folks or editors of trade publications. These people know lots about their industry and can be a great resource uh, if you chat them up. Finally, my favorite one is just call up and talk to potential customers. I recently helped a client who had a new veterinary product with some market research, and I spent several days. I just called up vet clinics of different sizes and types and asked them several questions about their purchasing and use decisions. Now, I've had some people tell me, I don't have time to do that. Yeah, yeah actually, yes, you do. What you don't have time for is dumping all your life savings or the money given to you by family and friends and charging full speed ahead with an idea that may not have any traction. I've also had people tell me they just don't feel comfortable doing that. Calling perfect strangers, dialing, cold calling, maybe get hung up on. Well, guess what? If that's you, you may not be cut out to be an entrepreneur because you're going to be spending a fair bit of time once you're up and running, chatting up people you don't know. And when you're chatting up these folks, I repeat, do not, do not try to sell them. I recently listened in on some conversations that an entrepreneur had with potential customers for a new medical device, but it was clear when he was asking the questions to these potential customers that he was trying to persuade them. And naturally, he said all sorts of positive things because it was clear that's what he wanted to hear. What you want when you're talking to all these folks is honest feedback. And you won't get that if you're trying to sell them. In fact, even consider maybe the opposite. Ask them to poke holes in your ideas. Make sure you listen to their feedback. Look to clarify. 
but don't push back. On that note, thanks to all our listeners. I appreciate you listening in. Thank you again, especially to our guest today, Patricia Miller, the CEO of Matrix 4 or House of M4, who joined us this week to talk about how she's turned around her grandfather's struggling manufacturing business. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website, globalocityservices.com. There's a library of blogs, tools, podcasts, and other free resources there. Because this show is for you, my listeners, my door is always open for comments, questions, suggestions, or just to shoot the breeze. I'd love to hear from you. Email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. You'll always get a response from me, I promise. Be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.